P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, you know, one of the big issues that we've been talking about is uh, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter and the cost that has drawn the attention of President Donald Trump. Yes, and some of President Trump's tweets and comments and negotiations. Yes. Well, to uh, help us understand this all a little bit better is Tony Capasio. He is our Pentagon and national security reporter for Bloomberg. And Tony, can you just lay out exactly the facts, what happened? With the, uh, the Trump call, on two occasions... When he was president-elect, he called directly to the program manager of the Pentagon's largest program, the F-35. This is unprecedented because there's a chain of command. Presidents don't call program managers directly. And one of the calls, Boeing CEO Dennis Muhlenberg was in the room. There's nothing to suggest something improper happened, but I think uh, what, the way it was described, I think Muhlenberg was bemused and pretty surprised when Trump called the program manager and said, uh, I have Dennis Muhlenberg here and we're on speakerphone. Yeah. Well, hold on one second. Just back up a little bit. So uh-huh. the program manager is responsible, correct, for ordering uh, some of the airplanes that the Air Force uses, including the F-35, which is made by the Lockheed yeah. Martin Corps, right? The, the program manager in this case is in charge of the entire F-35 program. He's okay. been in office like five years. Lieutenant General Chris Bogdan. So he's in charge of the cradle to grave, buying, making sure they're delivered, making sure they're tested right and delivered to the warfighter. So he's the main kahuna. Okay, <laughs> that's his official his official title. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's very unusual for a president. In fact, it is unprecedented. Is that is that correct for a president to call? Yeah. I've been the, covering this for like thirty years, defense, and there's no I have no occasion do I remember President Carter Bush. <laughs> Clinton calling a program manager. That's done by the Secretary of Defense. This does demonstrate Trump's, some might say, impulsive management style, if you like what he does, hands-on management style. But it it doesn't fly in the military because the acquisition system is is guarded and surrounded by rules and regulations to prevent undue influence of the award of multi-billion dollar program. Okay, and just sort of to, to back up, to sort of re-emphasize the point that uh, that you unearthed in the story that was published today on the Bloomberg, uh, where you have Boeing, which is a direct competitor to Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing's head sitting in the room with President, or President-elect Trump, I should say, mm-hmm. speaking with the program uh, manager for this F-35 program, What did they talk about? Were they talking about the details of the financing, of plans for purchase? What what did the Boeing uh, CEO learn? We're talking very general details that Trump asked General Bogdan about the F-18, Boeing's plane, 
versus the F-35. Very rudimentary questions. There was no contractual issue. There was no. Uh, there is no contract for a competition. That's ver- right now in the uh, very much in the very much in the analysis stage. So basically, Trump, I think, the way it was described to me, was kind of lear- trying to get a sense of the difference between the F-18 and the F-35, kind of a airplane 101, as opposed to trying to get into the nitty-gritty of how do you compete the F-18 against the F-35? Well, Tony, maybe you can do that, because that may also shed a little bit of light on, I don't know, we've got a new defense secretary, uh, a former Marine Corps. I don't know if you can ever really be former Marine Corps. Uh, and the kind of uh, aircraft that go off of carriers is not necessarily the same kind of uh, aircraft that uh, the Air Force wants, or our allies have already committed, I would imagine, billions of dollars to producing. Right. The, the, the bulk of the 22,443 F-35s is going to the Air Force in the conventional airplane uh, model. The Navy is going to buy something like 300 F, the, uh, the C model that goes off carriers. But the C model is a stealthy, fifth gener- what they call fifth-generation fighter. The F-18 Hornet is what they call a fourth-generation fighter. It lacks a lot of the software, sensors, and the, the fusion capability, the ability to take a lot of data, meld it, put it in display and push it out to other planes. It's a good plane for what it's designed to do, but it's not doesn't have the same right. capabilities as the F-35. Tony, I want to get back to a point that you made earlier uh, when we were talking, when you said that, you know, or you quoted somebody, an analyst, saying, when a president ignores the chain of command by going directly to a program manager, it creates chaos in the system. Can you explain how? Because it sends a signal if a three-star general gets called by the president, if I'm a major or lieutenant colonel, you know, I might be shaking in my boots. I might be wondering, am I going to get a call from the White House asking what am I up to with my program? There's, it injects an element of uncertainty into a process that is governed by a number of regulations. Defense contractors say too many, but those are all in place because of past procurement scandals and the need to protect the integrity of the system. Are there any practical implications of this? I mean, you said that there were no kind of details that were talked about. It was much more of a tutorial with the highest level of people. But, you know, is there any other ramification from this? The only ramification I can see immediately is that there's it plants the seed of doubt in other program offices that, heck, will I get a call from the White House about my program? versus getting a call from the defense secretary or the Navy secretary or the Air Force secretary. I, I don't see an immediate practical impact. This is more of an illustration, though, of President Trump's management style. Right. No response from Bogdan spokes, uh, spokesman Joe uh, Della Vidova? I sent them detailed emails. I called them. I explained to them, we're going to yeah. run the story. You should give us the memos for the record, because if we don't, if you don't, we're going to run a story, and then we're going to run a story after we get the memos from the Freedom of Information Act, and then others are going to chase the story, and it's going to string out for a while. But right. they didn't want to talk. Tony Capasio, Pentagon and national security reporter for Bloomberg News, with a terrific, important story about just how much Donald Trump is bucking the norm. Ward McCall.
McCarthy. He's the chief financial economist for Jefferies. Hey, Ward, uh, you know, you're looking at small and mid-cap so- stocks. That's the domestic economy. Um, at least that is the way it's traditionally viewed. Uh, can, what can you tell us about the current state of the domestic economy? And does that uh, performance uh, jibe with what you're, you're seeing? Well, the U.S. itself is overwhelmingly a domestic economy. Our export sector is relatively small. The service uh, sector of the U.S. economy accounts for over 85% of of total payrolls, and it's been doing well for quite a while here. And there are a number of indications of that, one of which is that service inflation has been running at 3% or a little bit higher uh, for the, the past year. So uh, if you're looking at the domestic um, component of the U.S. economy, it's really doing quite well. You know, Ward, how likely do you think it is that the Fed will raise rates too quickly and could end up uh, causing uh, some sort of policy error? Well, you know, based on what we've seen so far, and and that would include uh, at least some of the comments from Fed officials this week, I think it's highly unlikely uh, that the Fed raises rates too quickly. Uh, I think that it is much more likely that the Fed is uh, on the verge of falling behind the curve. Uh, the picture on the inflation side has accelerated really quite rapidly. And if we get an increase of five-tenths of one percent in the PCE deflator later this month, then the Fed will have hit its two percent target on its uh, primary inflation objective. So. You know, Warren, I, hold on one second. I just have to say, because PIMCO came out and they said that, that we are on the brink of potential policy mistake for Fed uh, officials to raise rates too quickly and end up cutting off uh, the recovery. Ward, uh, what you're saying is not uh, unpopular. Frankly, it's 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 probably the more popular uh, theory right now, which is that the Fed is falling behind the curve. Um, why are we in such a different scenario now? that we have moved away from a slow growth environment and, and we could be heating, in, uh, heating up into this sort of a uh, higher inflationary environment? Well, when, when you look at the data that we've had over the last several weeks, for the most part, it's been rock solid. Um, you know, it's not as if the growth trajectory is going to accelerate um, substantially in the a- absence of, of fiscal stimulus. What is different, uh, and I think is quite significant, significant, is that the inflation environment has changed quite a lot over the last uh, year and a half. If you recall, in September of 2015, the year-over-year change in the CPI was zero, uh, and now we're running at 2.5%, and of course, the PCE deflator is falling in that direction. And if you recall, earlier this week, Janet Yellen was talking about what the Taylor rules would suggest for the Fed funds rate. And the Taylor rules would suggest that the Fed funds rate should be substantially higher than it is right now. So I think the Fed's objective has been to continue to nurture the economy along uh, with a very accommodative policy. Uh, but I think that um, what's happening on the inflation side is uh, has been a surprise to them. And I think that it would behoove them to acknowledge that by uh, making a rate hike in, in March. Ward, just quickly, uh, are there any specific indicators or tools that you use now that you did not use, let's say, 10 years ago when trying to figure out what is going on? Because things seem to be happening with much greater irregularity, but also speed. 
Well, I think the the primary uh, difference in terms of the way I've come to look at the economy over a period of time is to acknowledge the structural change that we have had in the U.S. economy, and that is um, the you know become so overwhelmingly dominated by the service side of the economy, and that has what has made the U.S. not impervious, but um, you know very um, able to withstand some of the shocks that we've seen um, from overseas in terms of growth. Um, and it also helps to explain why U.S. inflation is very is really more responsive right. uh, to overseas economic developments than right. the growth rate is because right. um, we import so much of what we you know consume. What? Ward, thank you so much for being with us. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Ward McCarthy, Chief Financial Economist for Jefferies. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. Paul Ryan, uh, the House Speaker, was uh, just talking earlier to reporters, and he said that Congress will act on Obamacare after February 20th, although we are getting some details about what a revision to uh, ACA or Obamacare might look like. I want to bring in Dr. Jonathan Gruber, economics professor at MIT from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Dr. Gruber was a key architect of Obamacare. And uh, Dr. Gruber, can we just start with a sense of how... uh, Republicans are proposing to change Obamacare? Well, I, I can't give you that sense because we don't know. Uh, Republicans, you know, has been said many times before, are sort of the dogs that caught the car at this point. Uh, they've been barking after for many years saying we don't like this law. We could do better, but they've never actually proposed what we could do better looks like. And the problem is they're in a tough box because essentially there is no Republican alternative to the Affordable Care Act, which does not lead to more people being uninsured, right. increase discrimination in insurance markets, uh, or, and or uh, raise, raise government costs. So they're well, a bit stuck right now. Dr. Gruber, after seeing how uh, the implementation of Obamacare went, are there things that you would change uh, to make it better and to prevent health insurers from backing out? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, the two things I would change with Obamacare most are that actually the law would be implemented implemented as written. The first of those is the Medicaid expansions. Most of the states that have seen the most extreme increases in premiums are states that haven't expanded Medicaid. And that means that there are sick people still left in the private exchange pools rather than being pulled out into Medicaid. That would help a lot. The other thing that would help a lot is the law put in a well-functioning reinsurance program, a risk quarter program for insurers, where they, to date, should have gotten about $8 billion in payments that Republicans have blocked. That would have offset a lot of insurer losses and allowed them to stay in the market. So the first things we could do is just go back to honoring what the law set up. 
So wait, yeah. just, just to explain so the, the first thing to make sure that I understood sure. it. So in other words, sure. it's uh, just a matter of how people are accounted for. And if they get sick enough, they should get shifted under the Medicare budget, which would actually come out directly from government budget rather than from the insurance Company. Sure. Yeah. So it's it's so the way the law tried to help cover low income people is expanding the Medicaid program, which is a program for low income Americans, to everyone up to 133 percent of the poverty line, or about like fifteen thousand dollars for an individual. Um, the idea was those people are generally sicker than are people at higher incomes. Let's have the government absorb those costs, and let's leave insure. Let's pull them out of the insurance pool. Unfortunately, due to Supreme Court decision, that was made optional for states, and a number of states have chosen, despite full federal financing, not to expand their Medicaid programs. That's horrific along a number of dimensions, which we could get into, but the dimension that's relevant here is that it leaves those low-income, sicker individuals in the exchange pool, uh, raising the insurance cost for everyone else. All right, I'm just trying to get my head around this because looking at the provisions, uh, it should be noted, and maybe you can do so, that the Affordable Care Act and Patient Protection uh, Act uh, has a lot of different elements to it. It's not just this exchange, which, of course, may be the most public and uh, facing uh, experience. Can you describe maybe three provisions of the the ACA that— you believe will in some form stay in whatever kind of new wrapping it comes in? That's a great question. So it, you're right. I'm, I'm sort of getting a bit into the weeds. Why don't we back up a little bit? There's three key parts of the Affordable Care Act that work in conjunction, the so-called three-legged stool. The first and most popular, or what we might call the dessert of the law, is ending discrimination in insurance markets. America was the only developed nation in the world where insurers could literally say, you're sick, I'm not giving you insurance, or you're sick, I'm going to charge you $10,000 a month. That ended on January 1, 2014, and that's wildly popular. The problem is you can't tell insurers to do that without helping them pay the costs of accepting those sickest patients. We did that in the Affordable Care Act in two ways. The second leg of the stool was the individual mandate, which brought healthier patients in to help absorb the cost of the sicker patients. The third was to actually subsidize the cost of insurance so that people would want to come into this pool, even if maybe they weren't, uh, they weren't sick. So that's the three-legged stool. Those are the key parts. Republicans have already talked about and are taking steps to weaken one leg of that stool, which is individual mandate. But really, even that is more confusing than it needs to be. If we step back, it's all just about who pays for the sick. In America, 80% of the spending is done by the 20% sickest people. They can't pay their own bills. They don't have the money. So health insurance is all about redistribution. And the question is, who is going to bear the cost of helping subside? Who is going to help society absorb the cost of paying for those sickest Americans? Well, just, okay, just, so just stop right there. So based yes. on your experience, mm-hmm. and, and, and you can give the unvarnished answer, so okay. what do you think, at least ideologically, uh, the Republicans believe will solve or maybe not even address this problem? I believe the Republicans do not have a solution to this problem because basically, fundamentally, they, they have to, if you look at the, what they've discussed and proposed, they have a set of principles they've laid out which, taken together, lead this problem to be unsolvable. So if they're going to solve it, they're going to have to either, for example, let the mandate stay or 
throw more money at insurers, which they've already rejected as an insurer bailout, or subsidize individuals more to participate, which they've already rejected as fiscally irresponsible. Basically, the Republicans are in a box of their own making that cannot be escaped without breaking one of their existing policy positions. Dr. Gruber, even given the current form of ACA, the cost Mm -hmm. is set to increase meaningfully in the coming years. Is there any way to provide health care for the sick to do what you said and redistribute uh, who pays for it without incurring a very big cost that will inevitably expand our deficit? So, you know, we're now stepping back even further and talking about the overall cost of the healthcare system. You're absolutely right. Recent projections say that healthcare costs over the next 10 years are going to expand to be from 17.5% to 20% of our economy. That is largely not about the ACA. That's about the underlying drivers of healthcare costs, which have risen inexorably uh, since World War II in the U.S. Indeed, the last Seven or eight years have actually been the slowest period of healthcare cost growth in our nation's history. Many fear that's about to end. That's a much, much bigger and harder discussion. Well, we're going to, you know, and we're going to look forward to having it with you. I beg your pardon. We've got to just uh, move on. But uh, Jonathan Gruber, uh, economics professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, talking about that. Yes, we're going to have him back talking about the Affordable Care Act. Analysts have been feverishly trying to assess just how much money the biggest U.S. banks could save if we do get some kind of rollback of the Dodd-Frank Act, as well as uh, these corporate taxes that President Donald Trump has promised. Yalman Onoran is one uh, such reporter who has been crunching the numbers here at Bloomberg News. And uh, Yalman is here with us. Uh, Yalman, you wrote a story estimating that Banks, the six biggest U.S. banks stand to uh, earn or earn more uh, by about $12 billion a year if Trump does come through with the tax cuts. First of all, why does this matter? Well, more money. For shareholders. Right. I mean, would it all, would it all go directly to shareholders? Um, possibly, of course. <clears throat> um, who knows? They could they could also improve their capital levels, <laughs> uh, as they've done over right. the years. But uh, you know, capital level capital levels in in the banking system are excellent. So so actually, any extra money probably will go to shareholders because they they they've been waiting for that money. Um, banks have been very stingy on dividends in the last since the crisis uh, because the regulators have told them to be stingy and haven't hasn't let them really. Um, really pay pay back their their shareholders because the, the the capital levels have to build up, but they they have built up. So so any extra money will probably go to shareholders. That's why why share investors like it, and that's why the shares are going up. How did you get the actual number though? Oh my God, it took me a while. <laughs> it's a lot of number crunching, but I I basically the, I mean, the what ju- were the assumptions? I guess the is a better way it, to say. Just of it, I tried to look at um their what they're paying in the U.S. Uh, for what they say are their U.S. earnings. Because, so what are you know, we talking about, a 35% tax rate for some of them or no? Um, I mean, the effective rate um, yeah. in the U.S. for the big banks um, is about 28%, okay. which is um, double the the big corporation average uh, that the Government Accountability Office has found. Um, so, 
you know. And, so wait, wait, wait that, you got me there because that stings. Twenty eight percent is the effective tax rate for the banking industry or the big banking industry in the United States, and you're saying that is at twenty eight percent. That is double the effective tax rate that corporations in the United States pay. It is because the banks don't get uh, all kinds of deductions um, that non non financial companies get plant from, equipment and for so on capital in, expenditures and all kinds of things so they they're much closer to the 35% top rate and and uh, so when the rate goes down and the deductions are eliminated uh, as part of that reform they'll benefit more okay <clears throat> yaman before everybody runs out and waits for money to fall from their bank shares how likely is it that president trump will pa- get through the tax proposal that would deliver this $12 billion boon to the six biggest U.S. banks? Well, of course, that's hard to know. Um, but, you know, as, as the lead uh, person mentioned in the story, recorded in the story says, tax reform is hard to do, but tax cuts are easier to do. And, and they, they, you know, governments in the past have managed to, to cut taxes. So they could, they could cut taxes... Uh, by maybe not as much as they promised, but they could cut taxes. So, well, that, the reason that... why I ask is because we've seen this phenomenal rally in financials, and there has to be this nagging question of, you know, what happens if it do- if this doesn't come to pass? Of course, and, and, and it's and, baked in at this and, point. And, and all of these things, and it's not just tax reform, as you said. There are all the things that are being priced into the into the stock prices of banks and other sectors. You know, it, some of these things might not happen. Um, but you know the pricing in you know it's very it's a it's a hard science it's not easy to see how much of all this stuff is priced in but none of it is probably 100% priced in so so i i you know when when i write the article or some analyst has a report that says you know here's the 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 actual dollars that banks might get at this you know tax rate investors don't say okay let's just put that in and then now go and buy at that price but they say okay that's another you know, five percent bump to the, to the share price now, and then another news comes out, and they say, "Well, that's another five percent." So, right. so incrementally, all these all these hopeful things are are building into the share prices. But how much of them, in what shape and form, will actually come out? Um, you're right that those are all unknowns still. I mean, there's uncertainty. But I was just looking at some of the bank stocks and thinking, well, you can actually get paid to wait till this happens, right? Because J.P. Morgan Chase, even though the stock is up four and a half percent just this year, it's paying a two percent, two point one percent dividend. So you can get paid to wait until, or you hope, perhaps, as an investor, that these profits will flow back to you either by share repurchases or by uh, increased dividends. You know, I just have to say, Gary Cohn is the one who is helping shape this tax reform for President Trump. He's the head of the Council of Economic Advisors, Right, correct. And he is the former chief operating officer and president of Goldman Sachs. Whose stock has done also very well, along with a lot of other financial... Hitting record highs. Yes. You have to wonder how much uh, he's going to weigh in and say, look, you know, these banks need to pay their shareholders a lot more money. I mean, what's the argument? <laughs> well, or, or the, can't they make the level playing field argument and say, look, you know, uh, we've done what you've said you, you've asked us to do. Uh, we've increased those capital ratios. Um, here's where we can do and work together. And, and you know, on tax reform, Cohen doesn't need to say uh, we need to do this for banks because the whole – concept of tax reform 
you know, it's been debated for years. Everybody wants some ta tax reform. It's complicated. It's horrible. We have a million deductions. Oh my God, nobody can figure it out. Of course, if you think about it, for corporations, it really doesn't matter because they have the lawyers. They can do the deductions. It's the little guys who need a simpler tax. Well, I'm glad we've got you to help us. Uh, Yaman Onoran of Bloomberg News. Check out his story on Bloomberg.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.